the Winter Olympics have begun, and what amazes me is that we have learned to combine abject laziness and house cleaning into a single Olympic sport. Uh, what is more, it's one of the most entertaining uh, Winter Olympic events to watch. Where else can we watch men who haven't changed out of their pajama pants vigorously scrub a floor of ice in the hopes of winning a shiny gold medal? Curling is a thing of beauty, is it not? Uh, I, I do think that we have much to learn from, or can learn much from Olympians. They run, race, or place themselves on a sled face down on a hill sliding 90 miles an hour. Uh, they have to train and persevere in training, all in the hopes of winning the prize, of crossing the line and being rewarded with gold and glory. I wonder if part of the reason so many find the Olympics so fascinating is because the tension, trial, and triumph cohere with our internal and, and instinctual hope of a reward at the end of life's race. In the Bible, the, the God of the universe reveals that there is indeed a reward at the end of life's race for those who fear Him. God the Father calls His people to follow the lead of His Son and so persevere in faith-filled obedience until they enter the promised land of heaven. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 145. And we're going to be working our way through several chapters here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, 2, and 3. The chapters are the larger numbers there you'll see in the text of Scripture. And the verses are the smaller number, numbers. And I'll be referring to both chapter and verse often. I hope that'll help you follow along. While you're turning there, um, let me just remind us of a few things concerning the context of our passage. As we thought about last week when we began this study in the book of Deuteronomy, this book, it recounts Moses' last words to the people of Israel. The purpose of the book of Deuteronomy was not only to prepare the people of Israel for entering the promised land, but also to equip them with all that they would need for life and godliness once they entered into the promised land. Once in the land, the people of Israel would read and reread this book. It would be their guide for life in the land. As I mentioned last week, this book comprised, is comprised of three speeches from Moses. The first speech begins in chapter 1, verse 6, and continues all the way to chapter 4, verse 43. This morning we'll be studying uh, through roughly the first three-fourths of that speech, of that first speech from Moses as we consider Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 3, verse 29. In this first speech from Moses, Moses calls the people of Israel to remember their failure and to remember God's faithfulness. Moses' aim is twofold in recounting Israel's past, to encourage obedience and to discourage disobedience. And he does it by way of examples from the past. Our passage progresses in two ways, geographically and historically. Geographically, as the people move from place to place, and historically, as we move from one generation to the next. Through all of the changes in the places and the people, we learn this amazing truth. Our God does not change. As God leads His dear children along from generation to generation and from place to place, He remains faithful, even where His people are faithless. This portion of Moses' sermon, it called forth a response from Moses' hearers. Remember, Moses is addressing that generation, that second generation, who are standing on the edge of the promised land. And in response to this sermon, the people of Israel, they were to trust and obey the Lord who led them on the way. That's how we should respond to this passage too. That's the main application that we should take away from this passage. We must trust and obey for our God, He still leads us. He still leads us today. We learn about faith-fueled obedience to God in four ways from our passage. First, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 to 18, we learn that we should gladly receive God's gifts. Second, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 46, we learn that we should resolutely refuse rebellion. Third, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1, beginning there and stretching all the way to chapter 3, verse 11, we learn that we should carefully keep God's commands. And fourth, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 12 through 29, we learn that we should possess. We should possess our promised possessions. Gladly receive God's gifts. Resolutely refuse rebellion. Carefully keep God's commands. and Possess your promised possessions. Those four points will form the outline of the rest of this sermon. Let's begin by considering our first point. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 1, just verses 9 to 18. Here we learn that we should gladly receive God's gifts. Let me read chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 18. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial, you shall, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. For the judgment is God's, and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all things that you should do. Well, these verses enumerate two wonderful gifts from God, the gift of offspring and the gift of leaders. God so multiplied the people of Israel that Moses was unable to hear all of their cases. And it it tells us something, doesn't it, that he mentions their striving with one another. Moses He needed help. And so through the wisdom of his father-in-law and the generosity of God, other men were appointed to serve with Moses as judges. Now we need to to back up just a touch for everything that I just mentioned is actually related to the past. Uh, The events recorded in these verses actually took place and are recorded in Exodus chapter 18. Moses is repeating those events previously recorded because he wants to press home a truth to this new generation getting ready to enter the promised land. He wants to press home the truth that God keeps his promises. God is keeping his promises to Abraham. So we thought about last week in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that they would have a land to live in. Well, God fulfilled the first part of his promise to Abraham to such a degree that the people of Israel could no longer be led by just one man but that they needed to be led by many. Their cases needed to be heard by many. Moses, on the good counsel of his father-in-law, set up something of a court system. This was a a system through which many cases could be passed on depending upon the difficulty of the case and whether or not they could be decided. And notice just how good this gift of leaders is, not simply to Moses, but to the people as a whole. The leaders were to judge righteously. We thought about this earlier in James chapter 2. There was to be impartial judgment. Justice, righteous judgment is a good gift to a nation. Notice too that the righteous judgment that the leaders were to give depended not upon nationality, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or biological sex, but upon the justice of God. That's how Verse 17 ends, for the judgment is God's. You see, the leaders were to judge in such a way that their judgment would line up with, be consistent with God's judgment. The stranger and the sojourner would receive the same justice as the native Israelite. This arrangement was a good gift from God to the people of Israel. And it would be important as they entered the land and prepared to spread out across the territory. It would expedite their cases And provide good order and authority where sticky situations could quickly arise and devolve into disorder. God's justice is a good and gracious gift to a society. And for those of you who are here this morning who are involved with enforcing law, enacting law, or encouraging adherence to law. 
please do not underestimate the good gift and blessing that the law can be to your neighbor. As you labor to love your neighbor through participation in the legal system, I want to encourage you in your labors. Though final justice cannot be found in this fallen world, it is still important and loving to pursue the most righteous forms of justice that we can. So gladly give yourself to the work. It is a way, a sincere and meaningful way to love your neighbor. And as I mentioned, this gift of just judges actually grows out of God's gift of keeping his promises to multiply Abraham's offspring. Both gifts teach us that we can and should trust and obey God. He generously gives good gifts and we should gladly receive them in faith. Well, let's turn now and consider our second point, resolutely refuse rebellion. That's what we learn from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 46. For now, let's just focus in on a smaller portion of this section. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. Take a look there at verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country, the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country, and came to the valley of Ashol, and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Now, keep in mind that Moses is recounting the past. Uh, what we're being reminded of here is described in greater detail in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. God led the people of Israel from Horeb, it's also known as Mount Sinai. He led them from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land, to this place, Kadesh Barnea. And 12 spies went into the land, and 12 spies came out. And did you see the positive affirmations there in verses 20 and 21? The Lord is giving us a good land. He's setting the land before us. The people had the assurances of God that they would conquer and possess the land. Verse 25, you see there, even indicates that they brought back proof that the Lord was giving the people of Israel a good land. God generously gave them offspring, and now he was generously giving his children a good land. The proof was in the fruit. But did they gladly receive this gift? No, they, they rejected it. The people of Israel, as verse 26 says, rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Well, let's pick our reading back up there in verse 27 now. And as we read, I want you to consider how the people of Israel describe God's attitude toward them. Consider how the people of Israel describe God's attitude toward them. Remember, they've just affirmed that this is a good land, but they have the audacity to suggest that Yahweh is not a good God. Take a look there at verse 27. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. God hates us, the people of Israel said. He hates us so much. He hates us so much that he saved us from Egypt. Saved us from slavery. Just to bring us out and to be conquered and slaughtered. By the hand of the Amorites. He's not just evil. He's cruel too. That's effectively what the people of Israel. Were saying about God. You're the worst God. That's what disobedience. That's what rebellion says about God. When we rebel against God. We sit in judgment on him. We say like the first man and the first woman. Like Adam and Eve. God has got good and evil backwards. And I'm going to set him straight. I'm going to decide what is good and what is evil. Rebellion, you see, it requires arrogance. That is us when we sin against God. And, and I'm guessing that many of us have said this same thing. Maybe not with our lips, but certainly in our hearts. 
There have probably been some darker moments in our lives when we've thought to ourselves, I think God must hate me. I think he must hate me. I don't like where he has brought me. I don't like that he's brought me to this place. I don't, I don't want to be here. I want things to be different. I want things to be better. God, I don't know what you're doing. I do know that I don't like it. It's hard to see through the darkness sometimes, isn't it? What do we preach to ourselves? What do we say to others in moments like these? What do we say to those who are on the precipice of rebellion? I think we tell them what Moses said to the people of Israel. Take a look there at verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Do you see what Moses told the people of Israel as they were contemplating rebellion and disobedience. He told them to fear God more than man, to trust in God's strength and not their own. He reminded them of God's past deliverance and assured them that he would deliver them again. Moses, you see, he rebutted the assertion that God hated the people of Israel. He told them that's not true. No, no, no. God loves you. He does not hate you. That's what that beautiful picture of verse 31 is describing and communicates. God loves you. He, he carried you. Don't you see like a father sweeps up his son into his arms and carries him through harm? You know, some of us get tired of carrying our children, but not God. He loves to take his children in his tender arms and carry them through danger. Look back up to verse 19. And consider how the wilderness was characterized. God carried his people through that great and terrifying wilderness. He kept them safe. They were protected by his strong arms. Did the people of Israel believe Moses? Put your eyes on verse 32 there. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way. To seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day. To show you by what way you should go. Why did Israel rebel? Why do we rebel? Why did Israel rebel? They rebelled because they refused to believe. They had all of the evidence that they needed. God was right there with them protecting them day and night. He led them as a cloud by day shielding them from the desert sun. And he warmed them and gave them light by night and a pillar of fire. He never left them. He did not forsake them. They had every reason to trust them, trust him, but they refused to believe. And do you want to know something that's really interesting? Jesus, Jesus in his earthly ministry picked up this language from Deuteronomy. And he sought to comfort his disciples. He picked up Moses' idea of being in dread or being troubled. He picked up the importance of believing in God. He picked up the idea of preparing a place for his people to rest. And he, he picked up this idea of leading the way. And he said to his fearful disciples in John 14, you remember these words from Jesus. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, what God did in the wilderness for the people of Israel, Jesus has done for you and me. This is why we should resolutely refuse to rebel against him. He loves his children. He loves us. Like the people of Israel, we may not know where we are going, but we can trust him. We can trust the one who gave us life for us to free us from slavery to sin. We can trust that he has a good land for us and that he has gone before us to prepare a place for us. We must resolutely refuse rebellion because it leads to death. That's why Moses 
recounts the Lord's response to Israel's rebellion there in verses 34 to 46. The entire generation would be punished. According to the Lord, this evil generation, all those who were 20 years old and up, all but two of them, Caleb and Joshua, will die in the wilderness. It's interesting to consider that 20 years old was the original age of accountability in the Bible. What we're seeing here is that the Lord will cause the people of Israel to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until the whole generation died off. Joshua and Caleb would lead the next generation into the land, the generation that Moses is speaking to here in Deuteronomy, but only after the rebellious generation had died off. The consequences for Israel's sin and rebellion were only what actually the people asked for. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, the people of Israel asked to go back to Egypt. Can you imagine that they asked to go back to slavery? Notice in verse 40 of our text that the Lord told them to turn and to journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. That's virtually a command to Israel to go ahead, start making your way back to Egypt. Remember verse 27? How they feared dying by the hand of the Amorites? Well, as we see in verse 44, many of the people died. Many of the people of Israel died by the hand of the Amorites. Verse 39 recalls a stated fear from this event in the book of Numbers. There the people of Israel reasoned, they reasoned, they thought, you know, obeying God's commands to go into the land, it's, it's going to endanger our children. We, we shouldn't do that. It's, it's not safe for our children. Well, in verse 35, the Lord promises them that their children will safely enter the land, but they will not. See, the Lord matches Israel's punishment to Israel's desires, and he pairs the length of their years to the length of the days that Israel spied out the land. What is most harrowing about this section is the Lord guarantees these promises. Right? You can see that in the words, I will, throughout the passage. I will do this, I will do that. This will be the case. They were dead men walking in the wilderness. They were barred from entering the promised land and under the sentence of death. After Moses reported this news, I wonder if you see how they responded. They responded by adding rebellion to rebellion. The Lord told them in verse 40 to turn and to go into the wilderness, start making your way in the direction of the Red Sea, but they don't turn. They refuse and rebel against God's command again. They presume upon God's kindness and, and they presume upon His mercy and attempt in their own strength and power to take the land. They're told, look, you're not going to succeed. Don't do this. And still they go. Do you notice the, the nature of sin? It is transgressing the command of the Lord. It is shirking His rule. It's disregarding His wisdom. And in that light, I think, I hope we can see that sin is actually irrational. The people are told that they will not succeed. Still they go. Death follows disobedience and ruin follows rebellion. Children. Youth. Young adults, I wonder if you have noticed this pattern in your own life. Maybe you, you disagree with your parents' plans and instructions, and so you, you disobey. And when things continue to kind of go badly, you might disobey some more or lie to cover up your disobedience. And in the end, we're, we're usually in a much worse place than when we began, aren't we? I'm not trying to say that your parents are God or that their plans are perfect. But authority over you is given by a wise God who knows what is best. Remember that obedience to the Lord is never wasted or in vain. Don't add sin to sin or rebellion to rebellion, for it only leads to ruin. We all, I think we all here, need to consider the original audience of this message from Moses. Moses is asking his hearers to remember the deaths of their parents and grandparents. I mean, think about that for a moment. He's speaking to this gathered congregation. He's saying, now I want you, I want you to remember the deaths of your parents and your grandparents. He's telling them, your parents did not resolutely refuse rebellion. And so they were ruined in the wilderness. What is the implication, the application that Moses is trying to evoke 
for his hearers? What was the application that they needed to take to heart? Well, in the words of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, it was this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't you see, that was the problem in the wilderness, wasn't it? It was unbelief, and it was the deceitfulness of sin. What we're looking at here in Deuteronomy is about faith in the living God. Unbelief is revealed through disobedience. Unbelief is revealed in rebellion. They didn't believe God loved them. They didn't believe that he would protect them. They didn't believe that he would give them victory. They didn't believe that he was in control. They didn't believe that he was good. Unbelief led to their rebellion. So believe and go in, Moses is saying. That's what Moses is trying to communicate through this history to his hearers. But what about us? What does this have to do with you and me? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us what this has to do with you and me. Reflecting on that wilderness generation and placing Christians in the same position as though Moses were speaking to us. The writer of the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You hear that? You see, just as that generation standing on the edge of the promised land, listening to this sermon from Moses, had to believe, had to trust and obey, so we have to believe. We have to trust and obey. We have to exhort one another to believe that God is good and that he loves us and is with us and is in control and is carrying us so that we don't fall in the wilderness of this world. This world is dangerous. It, it tempts us with the delicacies of delight and the pleasures of the flesh. It tempts us with power and prominence and position. It tempts us with the illusions of ease and comfort. It tempts us with the sense of permanence when it's all passing away. We have to be a body of believers who helps one another resolutely refuse rebellion. We have to remind one another that God is worthy of our trust and obedience. We have to be like Joshua and Caleb who cry out with a loud voice and say, no, no, let's go. Let's go forward and let's trust our God. The land is good because our God is good. Brothers and sisters, who are you helping? Who are you helping trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Who are you helping battle unbelief and rebellion? Maybe it's members of your small group or your community group. Maybe it's another brother or sister that you get together with regularly. Find someone who will help you resolutely refuse rebellion. Find someone that you can help resolutely refuse rebellion. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to come to Jesus and put your faith in him today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Friend, the truth is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He has made each one of us in his image. He, he calls us to give our lives to living under his fatherly care and direction. To living under his authority because he is the author of our lives. But like the people of Israel, we have all rebelled against him. We have sinned and decided to go our own way. And disobedience, as we learn here in the book of Deuteronomy and throughout the whole Bible, disobedience deserves death. The good news of the Bible is that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully man. He was fully God. And he lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And his great love for rebels like you and me, in his great love, he laid down his life, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He took the punishment that our disobedience deserves. Jesus gave up his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners and as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. He died so that we might live. And then, three days after his death, 
God the Father raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave, showing us that our disobedience has been dealt with. Now Jesus, the the new and better Joshua, leads his people home to the promised land of heaven. Friends, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of your rebellion, then please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ home to heaven. You know, Moses, as I, as I read this sermon from him this past week, it strikes me that he is a brilliant preacher. He has masterfully crafted this sermon He has just painted a stark and dark picture of rebellion and ruin. And now beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and running through chapter 3, verse 11, he paints a different picture. He paints a picture of the people of Israel not rebelling, but carefully keeping God's commands. And do you know what comes as a result of their careful keeping of God's commands? Provision, peace, and progress. That's the picture we get. Moses paints this picture in order order to encourage his hearers to carefully keep God's command. So let's turn now and consider our our next point. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and stretching all the way through chapter 3, verse 11, we learn that we should carefully keep God's commands. Let's begin by reading chapter 2, just verses 1 to 8 for now. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah, the road from Eloth, and from Izzi and Geber. And we turned and went into the direction of the wilderness of Moab. Well, these verses, I think they're pretty straightforward. One thing that we need to understand about them, though, is that when we leave verse 46 of chapter 1 behind and move into verse 1, Of chapter 2, we have passed through 38 years of history. Moses has just fast-forwarded the story. In fact, he's fast-forwarded through 97% of Israel's time in the wilderness. And this tells us that Moses is being selective. He's not being exhaustive. He's trying to make a point through placing these historical events, this rebellion and this obedience, side by side. These verses, verses 1 to 8, recount the people of Israel carefully obeying God's command. This is a contrast, a deliberate contrast to what we just considered. In these verses, the people of Israel, they peacefully pass through the territory belonging to the people of Israel. That could have been a dangerous journey. But because they obeyed the Lord, they made it safely through. As the Lord commanded, they did not contend with the people of Esau. You see there in verse 5. And they purchased food from them. Verse 6, they made it safely, peacefully through. Why? Well, because they carefully kept God's commands and he watched over their way. This happens yet again, really, in the next set of verses, in verses 9 to 16. We're not going to read them now. But what you need to know is that the Lord commands the people of Israel to pass through the land of Moab. They carefully keep God's commands and they peacefully make their way through the land. There's one thing, though, that does happen in these verses that marks a turning point in Israel's history. If you look there at verse 16, you'll see that startling phrase, All the men of war had perished and were dead among the people. What we're being told there is that the generation who came up out of Egypt and rebelled against the Lord by refusing to go into the land of Canaan, they have finally died. God's judgment on that generation is complete. Only Caleb, Joshua, and Moses remain. 
Why stick that little note in there? Well, it's not for mere historical purposes. Moses is contrasting the results of rebellion with the triumph that comes through trust. After that sobering note, the march moves on. In verses 17 to 23 of chapter 2, the Lord gives the people of Israel instructions concerning passing through the land of the Ammonites. Now, technically speaking, this episode is chronologically out of order. Technically speaking, these events came after the conflict with Sinai, which we'll consider in just a few moments. The reason that we have this dyschronology, this placing chronological events out of order, is because Moses is grouping events thematically. He wants to show how the people of Israel carefully kept God's commands in their journeys through three successive lands, and so peacefully passed through. And this is one thing that you need to know about the Bible as you read it. Authors will often move historical events out of chronological order, not because they're unconcerned about that history, but because for them, history is theologically instructive. History teaches us. It teaches us about God. History gives us practical instruction for our lives. And what practical lesson are the people of Israel learning through these three episodes? Well, in contrast to the rebellion and punishment we just heard about in chapter 1, the people of Israel are learning that obedience brings peace, brings provision, and progress from the hand of the mighty God. They're not going in reverse. They're going they're not heading toward Egypt like their parents said. They're, they're actually moving forward. After Moses recounts the peaceful passage through, through Ammon, he turns to recount two victories over Sion and Og. See, he's grouping these victories together now. Here again, the emphasis is on the people of Israel carefully keeping the Lord's commands. In the first encounter with Sion, the Lord commands the people of Israel to approach Sion in much the same way they did with the people of Esau. The people of Israel are to tell Sion that, look, we just want to pass through your land We'll pay you for some, some food. You can see that in verses 26 to 29 of chapter 2. But notice what happens in verse 30. Begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. But Sion, the king of Eshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jehaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and all of his sons and all of his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took a spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From the Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. I wonder if you noticed something here, reminds you of something that happened earlier in Israel's history. Just like Pharaoh, the Lord hardened Sidon's obstinate and stubborn heart in order to bring about great victory and blessing for his people. Notice, too, the totality of Israel's victory. Israel defeated all of his people. Verse 33, Israel captured all of his land. Verse 34, Israel took all of his wealth. Verse 35, listening to the closing of verse 36 again, the Lord our God gave all into our hands. It was all God's to give, and he gave it all. Except, did you notice this? Except for one little slice. Take a look at verse 37. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon did you not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river of Jebuk and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. You see that there. Israel obeyed. They carefully kept God's command. They didn't draw near or seek to take that land. The Lord had forbidden them from doing so. And they heeded him. They, they obeyed. This very same thing happens with Og, the king of Bashan in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. The people of Israel carefully do as the Lord commands, and he gives them total victory over King Og. Just take a look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. Verse 4 of chapter 3, And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities 
fortified with high walls, gates, and bars beside many, very many unwalled villages. See, I think Moses, he is hitting all the right notes as he recounts this history. He's speaking to a people who've been commanded to go into the promised land and to conquer the land. He, he mentions two powerful kings, and he mentions their total destruction by God. And he mentions that they had fortified cities with high walls and gates and bars. Think about it. What is the first city that the people of Israel are going to have to conquer when they enter the promised land? They're going to have to conquer Jericho. There's something funny about Jericho, isn't there? You remember what it's famous for? It's famous for really big walls. You remember how Israel defeated Jericho? They carefully kept God's commands and marched around it day after day. You got to imagine the conversations walking around those walls, right? What on earth are we doing? This, is, this seems to be the silliest thing. How, how on earth is this going to give us victory? The Lord told us to keep at it, brother. Keep walking. See, triumph came through trusting God and carefully keeping his commands. Now, as we've allowed our eyes to run across these verses, the truth is that we may have noticed some unsettling things in them. With both Sion and Og, we're told that Israel completely devoted to destruction all the people of their kingdoms, men, women, and children. They left no survivors. This is known in the Old Testament as holy war. It was holy because the holy God commanded it. It was holy because Sion and Og and all of the citizens under him were living in rebellion against the living God. Death is the punishment that rebellion deserves. And Israel served as God's instrument in bringing about the just judgment that their sins deserved. God, he still calls his people to wage a holy war. But we do not fight against flesh and blood. Christians are not called to make their way to some sliver or slice of land and completely devote a people to destruction. No, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. The war that we wage today is a war against our own rebellion, a war against our sin. As John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Part of our victory over sin comes through faith-filled obedience to the commands of God. Just as God defeated the mighty King Og so that he can defeat, uh, so he can defeat sins that seem mighty in our lives. Brothers and sisters, don't save any of your sins. Don't leave them alive. Put them to death. Don't coddle sin. Don't keep it. Kill it. Or it'll kill you. The Apostle Paul wrote, words that are faithful and true in Romans chapter 8 verse 13 when he wrote for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if you live by the spirit put to death the deeds of the body you will live brothers and sisters I say to you choose life in faith put sin to death today we wage holy war against our sin today we also wage holy war with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ we tell others that Jesus has triumphed over the enemies of sin and death. And we call sinners to come under his gracious rule. By our gospel proclamation and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is pleased to conquer hearts and redeem ruined rebels. If we are to carefully keep the commands of Jesus, then as we thought about last week, we need to keep his command and go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Moses, he reminded the children of Israel of their path and progress. He reminded them of their obedience along the way and how God was pleased to bless and reward their faith with peace and powerful victories. Moses is essentially communicating to the people of Israel that they, that these, peace, these past peaceful journeys and these past powerful victories are actually foretastes of what is coming when they enter the promised land. Something else was coming too land to possess. Finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 through 29, we learn that we should possess our promised possessions. This is the last point that we need to think about together this morning. Possess your promised possessions. Read Deuteronomy chapter 3, just verses 12 and 13 for now. When we took possession of this land at that time, 
I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of the Rephaim. Well, as you can see there from the opening words of verse 12, we're looking at the people of Israel beginning to possess their possessions. In particular, we're being told about the land that was given to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And what we must remember is that these lands that we're learning about here are actually not inside Canaan. right? They're outside of Canaan. That's why in verses 18 to 22, Moses reiterates the Lord's commands to cross the Jordan, to, to go in and possess the land that they've been promised. This land, Moses is telling the children of Israel, this land is just a down payment. It's a foretaste of what is, is going to come to you in full. Don't you see, you've, you've already been given your inheritance, so, so go and enjoy it. Cross over and possess your promised possessions. The Lord is going to defeat your enemies in the land, just like he defeated Sion and Og. Don't fear the inhabitants of the land. Fear God and possess what he promised to give to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, he rounds out this section of his sermon by reminding his hearers that there will be a transition in leadership in the people of Israel. Take a look there at this solemn scene, beginning there in verse 23 of chapter 3. And I pleaded, this is Moses speaking, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time. O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me on this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. We don't have time to touch on everything that these verses address. But I do want you to see that they summarize actually everything that has gone before. Right With Joshua taking the reins, we're reminded that Israel should gladly receive God's gifts of leaders. With God refusing Moses' entry into the land, we're reminded of the people's rebellion and of Moses' failure himself to carefully keep God's commands. Moses was part of the generation that rebelled, and he shared in that guilt with them. But Moses himself was guilty, for when the Lord commanded him to speak to the rock, he struck it instead. He did not revere God as holy. He rebelled and did not carefully keep God's commands. We're also reminded of God's patient mercy and faithfulness to his promises to give his people a land. Neither a rebellious people nor a rebellious leader would thwart God's purposes. Just look at Joshua and the certainty of verse 28. For he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land. You know, I think that we're tempted to linger over Moses' uh, words, his loss, reflect on his loss. And at one level, that's understandable. Here is a man who faithfully led God's people for 40 years. He, he was a sinner. Yes, he did not always carefully keep God's commands. But by and large, I mean, we think of Moses, he was faithful. He was faithful. The truth is, Moses is not the point of his sermon. He's an illustration, I think, inside his own sermon. Moses humbly uses his sentence of death outside the promised land to illustrate for the people of Israel what distrust and disobedience brings. Your parents aren't here anymore, but I'm here, and I'm not going to go in because I disobeyed. Learn this lesson. Obey the Lord and go in. Don't do the same. Follow Joshua 
He's going to lead you, so, so follow him. He's going to put you in possession of the land that God promised. Don't die outside the land like me. Go, live in the land, trust and obey. And this is where I want us to conclude. We need to learn this lesson too. Brothers and sisters, our God has been so incredibly generous to us. He has given us the gift of his son, the fulfillment of his promise of offspring to Abraham. He has blessed the nations with the gift of salvation. And we must gladly receive the gift of Jesus. We are guilty. God is gracious. And so we ought to be grateful. We should have gratitude for his mercy in Christ. Out of Grateful hearts, we should refuse to rebel against our good and generous God. We should carefully keep his commands, knowing that they are the path of peace, the path of progress in Christ's likeness, and the path which demonstrates that this world is not our home. We must give ourselves to possessing by faith today what we will possess by sight on that final day. Our Lord Jesus, our new and better Joshua, has conquered all of our enemies, and he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. He is the way, and we must follow in his way. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us by the grace and gift of your spirit to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to gladly receive him as our only hope before you. Father, forgive us for our rebellion. And we pray and ask that you would increasingly make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to increasingly say no to sin and to put sin to death. Help us to, to hear your word and to be doers of your word. And help us to possess by faith today and now and each day that you give us life and breath. Help us to possess that promise of glory with you. And help us to live in light of it. Help us to trust. Help us to obey. For our good and for your glory's sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.